A number of weeks ago, I um, began to look at some of the promises of God and study about the promises of God. And the first one I came to is in Exodus chapter 14, and I'd like for you to turn with me there. I really never got much farther than that because of what this developed into. But I want to talk to you, speak to you for the Lord in Exodus chapter 14. We find a promise given us in Exodus 14 and verse 14. The Lord says this, uh, Moses speaking for him. The Lord shall fight for you. What a promise. The Lord shall fight for you and ye shall hold your peace. Let's pray. Father, today we uh, want to be a blessing to your people. Lord, may we and I personally grasp this understanding that uh, you fight for us, that you want the best for us, that uh, we can always rest on you. Maybe, Lord, there's some here today struggling. They don't understand what's going on or why it's going on. And I pray today that they might win the victory. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I get into this passage, I do want to make just a few comments about the promises of God, really three observations. One of the things you need to know is that if you're not repentant of your sins and trusted in Christ and been born again, the only promise that is yours is that repentance will bring salvation and, and that, that promise that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life is for all mankind. But the other promises of the Bible are only for his children, only for those that have been uh, born again. The second observation that I'd say about the promises of the Bible is those promises that are given to Israel only belongs to Israel. This idea about the New Testament Christians being part of Israel's promises, we're part in that we're related to him and we're children of God by faith, but the promises of the land given to Israel are only Israel's. And the Lord repeated that on a number of occasions that the land was going to be given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the children of Israel. And then the third thing about the Old Testament, about the promises, is that uh, some of the promises are fulfilled and they're typical of uh, what happens in salvation. For instance, uh, we're kind of getting technical right off the bat here, but in Leviticus, it has this to say. It says in Leviticus 5, and I'll just read this to you, in 15, he says, If the soul commit a trespass and sin through ignorance in the holy things of the Lord, then you shall bring for his trespass unto the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flocks, which they estimated the shekels of silver after the shekel of the sanctuary for a trespass offering. 
And he shall make amends for the harm that he hath done in the holy thing, and shall add the fifth part thereto, and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make an atonement for that which is rent and the trespass offering, and he shall forgive him. Well, this is a this is a, a type and a shadow of things to come. And so those promises, of course, we're not going to consider. But I think that there are promises, and especially when we look at this promises today, that the Bible tells us that the Lord said he's going to fight for you. The Lord shall fight for you. There are promises that we can claim. There's promises in the Old Testament that don't just apply to the children of Israel, but they apply across the board. And in 2 Corinthians, it kind of beefs that idea up when it says, For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him amen, unto the glory of God by us. And so the promises given in the Bible are some promises that we can claim. And, uh, and Ephesians says, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of your calling, and the riches of his inheritance in the saints. And it says he's given us great, uh, exceeding greatness of his power to usward. So the thing that I want to, uh, first of all, emphasize is that when we look at the promises of God, a lot of times we want to kind of vacillate. Or we want to try to give God an out in this sense. Uh, if I'm having trouble and I bow my head and pray and I said, Lord, help me in my present situation, if it be your will. And then I go over and I see that in Isaiah 41, it says, fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee in the right hand of my righteousness. And then we say, Lord, you answer that if it be your will. Well, the Lord has already promised. I mean, the Lord has promised that he would help us, that he would strengthen us, that we shouldn't be dismayed, and he's going to uphold us. And you're so, it's like, it's like me promising my children when they were young, we're going to go uh, fishing, uh, uh, fishing uh, today at the, after I get off of work and and my stuff in the office is done, and, and, uh, and they come home, and, and they, they're discussing, well, do well, you think he's really going to do that or not do that? And, and, and there's a, quite a difference between them doubting what I say, and then when I get home, they're all bouncing around, saying, are we going now, Dad? Are we going now? And they're ready and willing and looking forward to the promise. There's actually a scripture in the Bible that says in Isaiah 45, 11, command ye me. Now, when I saw that verse, I thought, hmm, that's pretty presumptuous, you know. I'm not going to be bossing God around. I'm not going to command God. I'm not going to tell God what to do. But listen, it's not dishonoring to God to hold him to his promises. It's very honoring to God. God would have us to claim the promises of God, saying to God, listen, you promised in Isaiah chapter 41 and 10 that you would, you would, that I need not fear, that you would help me, that you will guide me, you'll uphold me by thy right hand. And so I'm just trying to encourage you. One of the greatest things that can build your faith is to get into the Bible see the promises of God and claim the promises of God and live by faith that he's going to answer 
those promises. And so we come to the uh, Isaiah, Exodus chapter 14, and we have this promise where the Lord says, I, the Lord shall fight for you and ye shall hold your peace. The background, of course, to Exodus, in chapter 1, it tells us that the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and brick and all manner of service, all the service wherein they may serve in Israel with, with rigor. And so, so uh, we have here a picture of the bondage that they were in. And then in another, another way, it pictures how when we were lost in sin, that we were in that bondage. And God, in wanting to deliver Israel from their bondage and servitude under Pharaoh, he, remember he sends 10 plagues, and the last one was the death of the firstborn. And they left Egypt by t killing the Passover lamb, and applying it to the doorposts and to the lintels in, 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 uh, in a picture form, in picture preaching, that one day the Lamb of God would die, and as we would apply that blood to our heart for the forgiveness of sin, we would leave the land of sin, that we would, that we would be a child of God and escape that bondage. Well, after they leave Israel, the promise, and we have showed some observations, all of the promises are only for the children of God, promises given to the nation of Israel, not for anyone but Israel, promises of the Old Testament were fulfilled fully by the coming of Christ. And it's vital that we become fully acquainted with the promises of God and claim them. It'll change our walk. And as we quoted, for all the promises of God in him are yes, yea, and in him amen, unto the glory of God the Father. One thing I want you to understand is that when, the, when we sing that song, we don't sing it here, but on Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wistful eye, to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie, I'm bound for the promised land. That oftentimes Canaan is pictured as being born again. But Israel was, was the picture of being born again when they applied the Passover lamb. And so what's going to take place after the Passover is going to be a growth in our lives as sanctification. And so when we come to Exodus chapter 14, what God is trying to do, he's not trying to save them, but he's trying to grow them. He's trying to prepare them for greater victories and greater battles. And it's, it's a walk uh, of sanctification. And, and we can compare that. Uh, you can't really see this, but physical Israel and spiritual Israel uh, were, were born again. Uh, being slaves to Satan as Israel is slave to Egypt. Uh, we're going to end in death if we're not, God doesn't intervene. And God brings salvation. And after we leave Israel, we're going to be walking in sanctification. And so let's look at, some, let's look at what's going on here. If we go back to... Back to uh, uh, 
chapter 13. God had promised them a land of... What do I got to do here to stop that? I guess that gets you guys awake with this stumbling over most of my preaching so far. I'm going to get rolling here, I promise you. He told them that he had a land of milk and honey flowing for them. In chapter 13, they've, they, they have spoiled the Egyptians. All the wealth, not all the wealth, but a major part of the wealth of, of Egypt is given to these Jews over a million a possibility. And in verse 17 of chapter 3, And it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Lest peradventure the people repent when they see war and they return to Egypt. We can't lose our salvation, but we can return to living like a lost person. God's going to vex our souls. But God led the people about through the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up harnessed out of the land of Egypt. And so, to, to try to really build, get back to what I'm trying to get at here, I'm talking about what happens after we're saved. What does God do? How does God work in our life? There's things that happen that often we don't understand. And right off the bat, there's a map here of Egypt. And here they're leaving Ramses. And the quickest way to get up to Jerusalem was to go right up this coastline. The Philistines are here, and also at that time, here there's a, actually the, the, the a canal through here now, but right around in here, the Egyptians had a wall, and it was really to keep out, at that time, the Hittites. And so, if Israel would go up here the quick way, they're going to face uh, the wall, they're going to face soldiers, they're going to face the Philistines. And God says, you're not, you're not ready for that war yet. So, what I find among my, in my own life and among many of God's people is that God had promised them the land of milk and honey. The milk and honey land is right here. But God doesn't allow him to go the quick route. He doesn't allow him to get there as quick as they desired. He's going to make them go a different way. And it's going to be the way of the wilderness. Have you ever felt like that after you've been saved that you're kind of stuck in the wilderness? You're kind of held up there and you don't know what's going on. This Christian life is supposed to be a, a life of milk and honey. It's supposed to be a life of blessing. But somehow you're tied up in the wilderness. We're thankful that God doesn't give us greater battles than we can handle. 
1 Corinthians tells us that there's no temptation taking us, but such as common to man, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will the temptation also make a way of escape. And so understand in the Christian life that the, that the quickest route, what seems the simplest, what seems the most logical to you, may be exactly opposite from what God wants. And so God has a plan. And so they leave there. And we get over to chapter 14. And it says, And, Moses spake, and the Lord spoke unto Moses, spake unto Moses, saying, Speaking to the children of Israel, that they turn and encamp before Pihiroth, between Migdal and the sea, over against Beelzephon, and it shall and before it shall ye encamp by the sea. And so instead of going the quick route, he brings them down here, and there's Pihiroth. And there's a what that that what that is is kind of a cul-de-sac. There's mountains on both sides, and we come down to the end of the cul-de-sac. The ocean and the sea is there. Let's read on here. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they're entangled in the land, and the wilderness hath shut them in. And I'll harden Pharaoh's heart, and he shall follow after them, and I'll be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his hosts, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And it was told the king of Egypt that the people fled, and the hearts of Pharaoh and of his servants were turned against the people, and they said, Why have you done this, and we have let Israel go from serving us? We made a big mistake in letting them go. And he made ready his chariots and took his people with him, and he took 600 chosen chariots of all the chariots of Egypt and the captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh, the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued after the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with a high hand. And so he brought them to a place where we've already covered that. In the wilderness, God had put them between a rock and a hard spot. And now, here they are. They've come out. God's blessed them. They're looking for a land of milk and honey. God says, don't go up the coastline because you might flee from war. You'll see a warring people. And now what has God done? Well, he's brought them between a rock and a hard spot. They can't go across the sea because they're confronted with that. There's mountains on both sides of this. And now Pharaoh's army's coming with 600 chariots, which, which breaks down to 600 tanks in our day. What is going on? I mean, they're in a worse situation than they would have went up the coastline. What is God doing? And the people are asking, what is God doing? They're wondering, has God brought us out here to die? Well, what's the purpose of this? Look at their reaction in verse 11 and 12. Who is like unto thee, O Lord? Oh, in chapter 14 and verse uh, 11 and 12. And, and they said unto Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? And, 
Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Lord, what are you doing here? I get saved. I'm born again. My sins are forgiven. And I, now I lost my job. Lord, what are you trying to do with me? I, th I thought, you know, as a hippie said in the 60s, uh, the Jesus, Jesus freaks they called him. They say, accept Christ as Savior and you'll, come, and you'll have a high that you never come down from. But you'll find that when you're born again, the life of the Christian is a life of a battle. That there's, there's wars to be fought. And here, Egypt, is a, the people are befuddled. They don't know what's going on. Why, why, why has God brought them to this point where it's Pharaoh and all his army and 600 chariots are pursuing them? to bring them back into slavery or possibly kill them. They're in the land of sanctification. And what's our reaction? What's our reaction when God puts us between a rock and a hard place? You ever been there? Well, if you haven't, you're going to go there. What's our thinking when we find ourselves in a worse situation than if we would have done it our way and went up the coastline? Does it seem sometimes God has prevented us from certain dreams and plans and instead put us in difficult places? It wasn't just a possibility of war up the coastline, but it was reality that, that these guys are coming. The greatest nation of the world at that time in 600 chariots, tanks, are at the very moment bearing down on them. What are we going to do? Are we going to run and dive into the sea? Commit spiritual suicide? I'm never going back to church again. Look what God did to me. Years ago, a guy who came and helped in the mission part of this, he gave a lot of time and energy. And in the end, he told me, I gave all this and this and this to the Lord, and the Lord dumped on me. Well... I was wondering, what did he do it for? Did he do it for the Lord or do it to receive something? But he felt like somehow his promises and his, his, his hopes and his plans had went astray. Are we going to not jump into the sea, but let's turn back and we'll run out there and we'll fall down on our knees and we'll beg Egypt to take us back and make us slaves. And they're whining. And they're saying, what is God thinking? What is God thinking? We could have been buried in Egypt. Why is God allowing this to happen? What's going on? But you see, uh, they forgot something that we often forget. Very critical. Very critical. 
They stood where they stood. They stood as a nation, carrying all the valuables that mentioned again there of Egypt. And they stood in that spot because God put them there. He told them to go there. God had put them there. Why do we think that God will save us and then dump us? Why do we think that God can save us and then somehow he puts us in a place, a rock and a hard spot, and he's abandoned us? Listen, God didn't save us uh, to abandon us. In fact, in, in Deuteronomy, when Paul goes, uh, uh, Moses, the book of Deuteronomy is Moses rehearsing all the history of Israel. It's really the last 30 days of Moses' life. And when you read that and you see the power and you see the love and you see the emotions that Moses is saying in Deuteronomy, he knew that he couldn't go in. It's right at the last of his life. But he says a very powerful statement. He said, God brought us out that we might go in. God saved you for a purpose. There is a sanctification time. There's a growing time, not sanctification that it will complete our salvation, but a growing time as a child of God. And he's put him here between this rock and the hard spot, but he's still with him. You see, it was God who loosened the clenched fist of Pharaoh. It was God who through his unmistakable wonders and power that brought the plagues, ten plagues upon Egypt, and they brought this most powerful civilization in the history of that time period. It brought Egypt to its knees. And why should God go through all that only to bring them to a place of despair? Sometimes we don't see God in the dead ends. But we need to remember what God has done for our lives and how he led us and how the wrong thinking about our current struggles. And they said it had been better if we had stayed there. And now I'm trapped. God's going to teach him something. And he's going to teach them how to fight. What could be some of the reasons? Well, God put them in this situation that they might know him more personally. Paul said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Much more important than a promised land is to know God personally. We struggle in this life. And there's times between a rock and a hard spot. But instead of throwing in the towel, instead of whining, Instead of saying, God, what are you doing to me? It's a time 
to cling to him. Paul said that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. So, the songwriter said, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have, rich, rather have him than riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus in houses or land. I'd rather be his and led by his nail-scarred hand. And so here is Egypt barreling down on them. The sea is in front of them. And what does God do? God fights for them. And he opens up the Red Sea. They go through on dry land. Egypt sees them. Egypt pursues them. And the waters come back. And it says in verse 5, chapter 15, Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord, and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him a habitation, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. And the songwriter said, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider fell into the sea. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider thrown into the sea. The Lord is God, and I will praise him. The Lord is God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is God, and I will praise him. The Lord is God, and I will exalt him. They knew something about God. They knew God would fight for them. And then what they say, the Lord, he's God. I came here in June of 1984. In the spring of the year, in, the, in March, we had a, well, I inherited some problems with some building codes, and we won't go into all of that. But they were allowing us to have services. And somehow the fire marshal saw that we were going to have a mission conference, the very first mission conference in March of 1985. And they sent me some letters in the mail. And they said, we're going to padlock your door and you're not having a mission conference. You're not having people come in here. We're in a rock and a hard spot. <laughs> uh, we didn't have a lot of money. We didn't organize with a lot of people. And now the state of Alaska is telling us that we can't have a special service. Well, we uh, had some meetings. One of the things we did is when the, one of the meetings when we went in to see the fire marshal, we took in a tape recorder set it on the table, and turned it on. And the fire marshal went ballistic. He went ballistic. I mean, he got loud, <laughs> he got obnoxious, 
And he said, we're not having this meeting until you shut that off. And I thought, hmm, they must be on shaky ground here. But the Lord had been working. And so they said, well, you can have your services. And they said, well, you can only have 50. And so one of our men said, well, what, what are we going to do? We have 50 people in here, and this one, 50 first, 51 come, and they're really a needy people, and they, they need minister too, and we're supposed to turn them loose. And that fire marshal looked at me, and he said, I'm not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. And the Lord is God, and I'll praise him. The Lord is God, and I'll exalt him. The horse and the rider fell into the sea. God will fight for his people. He'll fight for you. When Noah George, our missionary to Lebanon, when we got ready to ordain him and send him forth, a week before he was to be ordained, Black Road Baptist Church split. And it tears your heart out. And you wonder what we should do. But we knew God had called him. We knew the Bible taught that men should be sent forth by the authority of the church in ordination. And we did. And now, last yesterday, because it's a day difference, he had services on Saturday, and typically he has from 50 to 100 lost Muslim people, Arabs. And then on Sunday, he has services for his church. You understand that Sunday's not, not the Sabbath day in Arab country. And men are being saved, some of them primed to preach. It seemed like the Lord's priming them to develop them to preach. And you say, how could a, how could a guy from Nanilchik, Alaska, who's used to working on fishing boats, never wanted to ever leave Alaska, and now is in one of the, the poorest countries and the most dysfunctional country in the world, but the Lord is using him. Because the Lord is God. And he'll fight for his people. When our transition time, when pastor had come and I was working here part-time and part-time at the food bank and just we're trying to kind of get things ironed out for me to be more full-time as an associate. And he calls me on the phone and says, you got you to gotta come home. I, I'm working. <laughs> you got to come home right now. And what he, he relates to me and I find out that that Somebody, supposedly punks, had got into our building, set fire to the basement, torched the basement, and it started to climb up on the stairs, that the stairs are over there where the kitchen is, even so hot that it had melted the copy machine, but it didn't burn the building down and it didn't go any further upstairs. It ran out of oxygen. An insurance company paid, and we have 
a fellowship hall. We have a mission quarters. We have an extra Sunday school class. We got bathrooms and laundry facilities. And the Lord is God. You know, fight for his people. He was trying to, he's trying to tell them something in this promise. Yes, I've, I've put you between a rock and a hard spot. But I want you to understand. I want you to understand that I will fight for you. And we've been talking in a, in a sense of a corporate thing. But let me tell you something. He will fight for you. He'll fight for you. There could be times that you're taking heat at work and you don't know the solution, but he's allowed it. Listen, you got to understand if it's happening to you and you've not just caused it out of your own sinful activity, if it's happened to you, God has allowed it to happen. And even if it's out of your own sinful behavior, God can turn that for good. All things work together for good to those that love God or are called according to his purpose. What is happening to the Jews? What is happening that God wouldn't let them go up the quick way? Why did he put them between a rock and a hard spot? Because he wanted to teach them something. He wanted to teach them that I am God. And you can exalt me. Secondly, between a rock and a hard spot, God teaches us the strategy for war. He wouldn't let them go up the coastline. We saw that in 13 and 17. And God prepares them for war. How's he going to prepare them? Well, he wasn't drilling troops in the desert. It wasn't some new weaponry that he'd given them. It wasn't some new battle strategy. How do we battle in our impossible situations of the Christian life? How do we battle when we've come to the end of ourselves? How do we battle when we've come that we use up all our resources and it's finally come to this. Well, get out your pen and paper because I'm going to tell you the battle strategy. The just shall live by faith. Faith is a victory that overcomes the world. Once in the Old Testament and three times in the New Testament, God emphasizes, if he says it four times in the Bible, it must be important he says, the just shall live by faith. In the end, when it's all said and done, they're going, to, they're going to mess up. But in the end, when it's all said and done, this is the conclusion. By faith, the wall to Jericho fell down after they come past them seven days. You see, when I'm between a rock and a hard spot, I'm going to have to come to the place where I say, Lord, I believe you. Lord, I know you have a purpose here. Lord, I know you're trying to do something here. And I, it's come down to this, Lord. I've tried this, and I've tried this, and I've looked at this opportunity, and this opportunity, and I've tried to reason this, and this, and this. And now, 
with no, no honor to us, we come to the place and say, Lord, I've kind of finally come to the place. I'm at the end of the rope. I'm going to hang on, and I'm going to believe you, God. I'm going to walk by faith, God. I'm going to trust you, God. I know I'm your child. And I claim your promise. You will never leave me nor forsake me. I'm ashamed at the times when I've not just lived by faith. I'm not talking about sitting down and doing nothing. We're going to get to that. But trust God. He has a purpose. He has a reason for what you're in. And then between a rock and a hard spot, we can glorify God. Look in Exodus chapter 14 and verse 4. Exodus 14 and 4. And he said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart that he shall follow after them, and I will be, I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon his host, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord, and they do. And, and, uh, and then in verse... Uh, 17 of chapter 14. He says, And behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and shall follow them, and I will give me honor upon Pharaoh and upon his host, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. You see, uh, sometimes we forget why we were saved. The Westminster Short Confession, I don't agree with their salvation doctrine, but it says this, ask the question, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. First Corinthians says, whether we eat or therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever we do, do all to the glory of God. First Peter says, if a man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If a man minister, let him do it as the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. You see, the situation that you find yourself in, and they found themselves in, was an opportunity for God to get glory over Pharaoh. How often do we look at that? You know, you know my, my, my bottoms fell out and... And I'm between a rock and a hard spot, and I don't know what to do, and I don't know where the finances are going to come from, or I don't know where the health's going to come from, or I don't know how I'm going to accomplish what I've done, and, 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 I, and I have to, if I believe God really, I have to believe that He's brought me to this point. We've got to come to the place where, you see, we look at it, and we have this idea, we have this idea that, that Whoa, it's me. You know, God is doing this. But let's understand, listen, when God brings us between a rock and a hard spot, it's an opportunity to glorify God. We can either whine and cry, or we can say, Lord, you've brought me here, and I want, to, I want the fullest I can to bring honor and glory to you. That's why Moses is going to say in that promise, he's going to say, shut up. You need to shut up. Quit your whining. We do a lot of whining. A lot of whining. But understand, God is in control. God is in control. There's nothing that comes into your life that God does not allow come. 
And so what is this? Well, it's a trial of your faith, or more precious than gold, which is going to grow you. But also, it's a time for you to bring honor to God. Your house is caught on fire. Your health is deteriorated. It looks like you may get fired. And these, these co-workers are watching you. He's going to crack now. This, this goody two-shoes is going to crack now. And you say, whatever the Lord wants. I'm trusting the Lord. And they find that God fights for you. There's an opportunity to honor God. The greatest opportunity, the greatest thing that we can be involved in is honoring God. Bring glory to his name. And I realize we live in the nitty gritty. I realize we have to get down in the dirt sometimes. I realize that this is not our home. I realize that there's trials of faith. But understand that God put him in Migdal in the sea because he wanted to teach him something. He wanted them to come to a personal, more greater understanding that God fights for you. And he wanted them to bring honor and glory to his name and he wanted them to live by faith. The times of trials are crisis moments are we going to act like God is dead? Are we going to act like God saves a person and abandons him and throws in the towel? Are we going to turn our back upon him? Or are we going to get it down within our heart that he's all in all and that he'll fight for us? When the three Hebrew children found themselves between a, a rock and a hard spot, a rock and a fire that killed the guys that threw them into the flames. What did they do? Well, they said, listen, king, we're not going to dishonor our God by worshiping your golden idol. And if God wants to deliver us, he'll deliver us. And if he doesn't, he doesn't, but we're going to get delivered one way or the other. We need to understand this. That it's not the worst thing to die and go to heaven. And while we're left here, God wants us to serve him. We're asking why did God put him in this situation? And well, he put him there so we could know him more personally, that we live by faith, that we glory to his name. And he wanted us to, to understand and to bank upon his promises of verse 14 where he says, the Lord shall fight for you and you shall hold your peace. We shouldn't come in here whining about what God has done, what's going on in our life. We should hold our peace and say, let's, let's wait this out and see what God's going to do. God will fight for you. Understand today, I don't know how to, I don't know how to Drive this into your heart. But God committed his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God does not have to prove his love for you. And God will fight for his children. He'll fight for you. 
And so all seems lost when we find no solution, when we're in a rock and a hard spot lays upon us. God is going to fight. But I want you to see, he not only fought for them, but he's, he says about five things, and it's not going to take 50 minutes. <laughs> it's going to take about five minutes. But here's the deal. Israel went from there. They went to Kadesh Barnea. And they went over to Eskal. And they got some grapes that it took two people on a pole to pack them out. And they learned that there were giants in the land. And they come back. And 10 of the 12 spies reported to all of Israel. It's a good land, but the walls are walled up into heaven and there are giants in the land and we're as grasshoppers. And Joshua and Caleb said, we're well able to take it. We have a God. But the rest of them said, no. Now, God will fight for us. But we better do what he tells us. And here's what I'm simply saying. We can be saved. We can, in a sense, go through the Passover, come out with a high hand, having all the promises of God, all the richness that comes in salvation, being able to soar like an eagle, but as an eagle born in a chicken yard, be scratching around looking for grain on the ground. Listen, there's a possibility to lose God's best for your life. And so here's what he says in verse 13. And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not and stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. He says, Fear not. Don't be afraid. You see, fear often focuses on tomorrow. The promises of God are not claimed for the day. God is not against us. And God has not forsaken us. And God has brought us to the very place that we're in that we might glorify him. And understand that 63 times in the Bible, God has said, fear not, fear not, fear not. Yeah, I know you're in a rough spot, but I brought you to this spot. Fear not, fear not. Don't turn tail and run. Don't throw in the towels. Don't say this being a Christian is not, not profiting in me. In fact, you, sometimes when you get saved, you face more battles than you've ever faced in your life. But he says, fear not. Why? Because he's with us. I will fight for you. Don't be a chicken. Then he says in verse 13 also, 
He said, fear not, stand still. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Stand still. Oftentimes, children will have the wiggles. And we say, stand still. When we want to run and dive into the sea, stand still. When we want to go and bow down to the world and as we're bowing down to Egyptians, the Lord says, no, stand still. We want to go to battle in our own strength. You know, I've given God time to fix this. Now I'm going to have to do it myself. He says, no, stand still. Just stand still. There's not a, you know, it seems like the simplest thing in the world to do would be to stand still. But often we find it the most difficult thing in the world to do, to stand still. When we want to focus on the problems, we need to focus on the promises. Stand still. But stand still doesn't mean that I'm sitting there and pouting. I'm not flopping on the ground and throwing a hissy fit. I'm not fidgeting and wringing our hands. But I'm going to stand still, as a parent would say, Johnny, stand still. Standing implies we're silent. Standing implies we're waiting for something to happen. And stand still means, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do now? We're waiting to be instructed. And so he says there in verse 13, see the salvation of the Lord. See it by faith. We're focused on God and not the problem. I'm not seeing the problem, but I'm seeing God. The three Hebrew children, as we mentioned, focused on God. The psalmist said, and in God have I put my trust, I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I'll not fear what man shall do unto me. And then in verse 14, he says, hold your peace. Hold your peace. The Lord will fight for you. Hold your peace. Be still and know that I am God. I'll be exalted among the heathen. I'll be exalted in the earth. And then in verse 15, he says, go forward. What I want you to see today is this. That there's no temptation taking you, but such as coming to man, but God is faithful. That we find ourselves between a rock and a hard spot, and if we're saved, God has a reason for that. And sometimes it's because of sin, but God's just disciplined us and will come out with a peaceable fruit of righteousness. But so often we get all turned upside down. And somehow we think that what's happened to us is some kind of thing that never happened to anybody else. But God saved Israel so they could bring him into the promised land. But there was a group of them, represented by 10 spies, that wouldn't stand still. 
They wouldn't look at the salvation of the Lord. They wouldn't fear not. They feared. And you know what? They never got to see the walls of Jericho fall down. Listen, it's possible to be a member of Black Road Baptist Church and be going through some trials and you've just stilled yourself and you've rebelled against that and you've bulled up and you have an attitude. And you wonder why God is doing this. And God's saying, hey, listen, 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 brother, listen, sister. I'll fight for you. But you're going to have to stand still. You're going to have to surrender. You're going to have to go forward when I say go forward. And I will fight for you. Maybe this seems long and probably has been long. And maybe I've lost your attention. But I want you to know that... uh, God does not bring anything into your life without trying to grow you and make you a better person. And I want you to understand that your battles, if they're ever going to be won, they're going to have to be won by faith. And so as we come to a close here, possibly God's saying, you know what, you've been looking at this thing all backward. God wants to use this to bring glory to himself. Maybe you've been looking at this thing all backward because, you know, you think, poor, poor, woe is me. But God had a reason. A rock in a hard spot and the army of Egypt barreling down. And God says, just listen to me. Stand still. Listen for my orders. And I'll fight for you. I don't know how to express that like I want to. But God does fight for you. God does intervene in your affairs. And sometimes you don't even realize it. But sometimes it makes it very plain. That I open this door and close this door. Because I care for you. I'm fighting for you. And I hope that you leave here today knowing this. You can. You can trust God. Let's pray.